Hi friends, it's Jer Swigert of Global Immersion here. This is our second conversation in our virtual immersion, which is a series of live conversations with Israeli and Palestinian peacemakers, the folks who are embedded in the trenches of this war. It's happening over on our Instagram channel. We release the live conversations on our podcast here a week or two after the live conversation. I want to invite you to spread the word about these conversations because these are the voices that need to be heard more than what mainstream media is highlighting. One final note, this was a live conversation. It's real and it's raw and it has some technical issues with the audio. We're finding our friends in Israel-Palestine can't always get a stable connection for these IG live conversations. So bear with some of the audio quality. It's worth it to stick through it. I've got Jared Goldfarb and I'm gonna bring him into the conversation here just in, in a minute. Jared, I see that you're with us. I, I wanna frame a couple things though before I bring Jared in. Just to help us, I think, get our bearings around today's conversation. One, I'm paying attention to the ways in which language is being used, of course, in, in the commentary offered around this crisis. And the language that's being used often dehumanizes, demonizes the, the people that we disagree with and glorifies or deifies the people that we stand with. And one of the things that I appreciate most about Jared is the way that he is very careful about the language that he uses coming at us from a from a Jewish historian and theological perspective. He understands that language creates reality and is very wise in the way that, that he does it. So as we enter into this conversation, I want you to pay attention to how he speaks about not only a history of this conflict, but what he's experiencing here right now. Secondly, every time I sit with Jared, um, I am struck by a concept. And I, don't, I know that it's not the only thing that he ever teaches on. <laughs> Jared, you're probably smiling right now, but the, the concept that has been most impactful for me is, is a concept called Machloket, which I, I want to get to with Jared in a little bit. In short, it's this notion that the Machloket, it means part or particle, as I've learned from Jared. And whereas Shalom, it means whole or wholeness. And one of the things that I have admired in the way that Jared lives, loves, and leads is, is with this concept of machloket, understanding that, that he has a part and I have a part and you have a part of truth and that Jared's experience is as true as my experience is as true as your experience. And in the Jewish tradition, when we come to the table, we come bringing the parts that we have with us and understanding that they're incomplete and the way that we're going to grow a better understanding, a more righteous understanding, a more nuanced, holistic understanding is when we come into the space with the part that we have and together we spar with one another to a deeper understanding, which means that we have to understand that our perspective is not 2020 vision, that I am never fully right and always partially wrong, that in conversation, in seeking to understand another, I have to come into the space with a deep sense of humility, a deep sense of curiosity. And that's what this moment calls for right now as we're looking at the crisis in Israel and Gaza. And it is a time for grief. It is a time for lament. It is a time for urgent action to, to stop violence immediately. And it's a time to listen longer than feels comfortable. So the two practices that we're really going to center in this virtual immersion around peacemaking are see and immerse. How do we gain a more holistic understanding of what's happening here? First in the seeing by learning about and then immersing by learning from. We're going to get proximate to the miracle of technology in these virtual immersions. And so I'm very excited um, now to bring uh, Jared into the conversation. There you are, my friend. Really good to see you. Howdy. Hey, man. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. There's a book that I read just before seeing you in Jerusalem a little over two weeks ago called The Old Turtle and the Broken Truth. Have you read this book? I have not, no. So, um, and this, for those of us listening in, it's, it's a children's book that is for all of us that I would recommend. And in, the, in short, the story is that, that a truth fell from the sky and it broke into pieces. Humanity uh, found a portion of that truth that protected it, believing it that believing that it was the entire truth, and the truth that they captured, believing that it was the entire truth, is I am loved, and wars were fought to protect this truth, and whoever attained that little part of the truth believed that they were the superior one, 
And then a little girl takes a journey and she, she meets with the old turtle and the old turtle says that the reason there are wars in the world is because the truth that they protect is only part of the truth. And then he gives her another part of the truth that had broken apart as it, and as it fell from the heavens. And the, the second part of the truth said, and so are they. You are loved and so are they. And the old turtle encouraged the little girl to take a journey, a hero's journey back to her own people to reconnect two parts that had been disconnected from one another so that a greater truth can emerge. You are loved and so are they. And it began to actually remake the world. I bring up that children's book because my friend, I hear that I hear that vision, I hear that message embodied by you, not only in the way that you teach, but in the way that you live. And, and I hold that the beauty of you are loved and so are they as the, the umbrella around our conversation today and pray that the conversation that we have continues to awaken our imaginations to that more beautiful truth. And so welcome to this conversation. My friend, I gave a little bit of a preamble. You probably were closing your eyes and grinning and you know, shrugging a little bit as, as I'm talking, but um, I'm, I'm grateful for you and I'm grateful for the role that you played in my life and in the lives of many of the peacemakers that I've brought into Israel-Palestine um, over the years. Um, I wonder if you could just start with an introduction of yourself. Tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about you. Um, tell us a little bit about, I think, your journey of finding home and a sense of identity. And then tell us a little bit about the work that you do, most notably, in your work as a peacemaker, you hold the tools of, of history and theology. Uh, those are the tools that are in your hands and that you've been honing over time. So give us, bring, us in, bring us into the life of Jared Goldfarb, if you would. Thank you so much, Jared. Thanks for the invitation and, and for the many kind words. And it's so wonderful to, to join you on this conversation and to see that apparently our, our, our years of friendship and, and cooperation has paid off because you, I think you teach Machloket better, better than I do at this point. Uh, that, that's only a compliment to the teacher then, my friend. <laughs> I'll give a, a brief introduction to, to myself and the work that I do and, and hope that folks will see that the two are deeply entwined. As I often, I often share with my students, you can immediately hear from my very thick Middle Eastern accent that, of course, I am not originally from Jerusalem, where I live now, and have called home for almost 30 years. I was born and raised in New Hampshire by two Jewish parents who were originally from New York. And so while they grew up in both a generation and a geographic region that was quite, or shall we say, slightly more rich in Jewish community, Jewish values, Jewish stimuli, Growing up in New Hampshire as a Jewish kid was a little bit of a sort of a lonely, somewhat shallow experience in the sense that just didn't have as many resources to develop a sense of Jewish identity or religious identity or communal identity. So it was living in Boston for a number of years, both during and after university, that I, I finally encountered the Jewish community that was really something to be, to be beholden in terms of its vibrancy, in terms of its breadth, sure, sheer numbers. One of the things I realized very was that with all of the opportunities to engage in different forms of Jewish life, whether it was learning, whether it was synagogue attendance, holiday observance, all sorts of things, there was one component that I started to see and hear about amongst the community that I had never read before in a, in a, in a personal way, and that was spending time in Israel as sort of a, a foundational element of one's Jewish identity. So after working for a number of years often, I decided that it was my turn to have that experience. I wanted to come and just, just soak up whatever I could from the land. And so I came in the mid-90s, and here I still am. So in short, there is something that I'm sure many visitors and those who have stayed would agree that is quite captivating. And um, something very, very, very powerful, both in terms of its day-to-day -day culture and experience, just literally breathing the air of this land that has seen so much for thousands of years. Um, but in a more meaningful way, something that really gets to the core of who, who we are, certainly who I am. As a Jew, I think many Christians and Muslims often feel very similar when coming to this land. And experiencing archaeological sites, sacred spaces that, that really reflect the narrative that many of us 
uh, were raised on, we believe very, very deeply. And so my identity journey, my faith journey took a rather unexpected turn in, in the fact that I never left this place. And for the last uh, nearly 30 years, I have built a home here. I have raised a family here. Um, and I have found a profession that I would have expected, and that is predominantly the world of education. Originally, I was somewhat intrigued and obsessed with the world of Jewish learning, specifically the rabbinical tradition of extrapolating and interpreting texts to understand how to live a Jewish life or, or how one could live a Jewish life. And it was that deepening of my own sense of Jewishness, that I started to notice that I was building a very comfortable, very beautiful bubble around myself and my existence here in Jerusalem. And while it was very cozy, and I was extremely happy to finally have a sense of Jewish community at belonging that I had never experienced before, it was somewhat limiting, especially as I would venture beyond that bubble and recognize that there are so many other identities, communities, faith narratives that this land has given birth to. And so as I started to explore my sense of home, this new space that I was calling my own, I realized there was so much more to learn beyond my Jewish self and community. And so I started to delve more into history and other faith traditions, basically the politics, the geopolitical war that has played out here for eight centuries. And so for most of the last 15 years, I've predominantly focused on teaching those subjects, all the while tinged in my background in Jewish studies and Jewish living. And so as you mentioned, Jer, bringing some of these concepts like the one of Maslokit, of division, but, but, but coming back together and finding ways to create wholeness bringing that into a space of rather extreme divisions in this land between the various communities and identities is something that I find very compelling and hopeful. And I think that, that many often look to their religious traditions and the history specifically of this land where prophets and teachers and messiahs walked before us. We often feel that this is where hope should spring forth. Yeah, thanks for that, Jared. I'm, I want to come back to the integration of history and theology in a little bit in, in the way that even you're understanding the crisis as it's unfolding right now. We began this virtual immersion last week, again, just in, in an attempt to amplify the stories of Palestinian and Israeli peacemakers like yourself who are in the trenches of this war and creating some space for you to articulate this in your own words. I recognize that there is risk involved even in, in this conversation. And there are many of our friends and colleagues who uh, can't take the risk at this time to step into a conversation in a public way like this. And so for those of you who are listening in, Global Immersion is actively working with them to try to figure out how we can more anonymously get their voices into the world and to amplify them as well. I, I think that one of the things I'm paying attention to since I've been home, Jared, is, of course, the way that in the West, we love to import the violence and the crisis between Israelis and Palestinians into our own streets. And unfortunately, at times, that looks like the violence that that descended upon our, our six-year-old Palestinian boy in Chicago. It's descending in my own community as Muslim sisters are terrified to walk up and down the sidewalks of our streets here wearing hijabs. I'm also seeing it in the fear of my Jewish community here and, and recognizing that what is happening right now has awakened a level of collective fear and trauma that few of us who reside outside of the Jewish and the Muslim space, and even more specifically, the Palestinian space. We, we just don't understand the collective trauma that October the 7th unleashed, specifically for the Jewish community. And, and we heard much about this from a Palestinian perspective from Munter Isaac. If you haven't listened to that or viewed that conversation, please do so on the Global Immersion channel. It was absolutely breathtaking and so critical. I think that what's happening over here is that people are jumping to their premature conclusions. They're, they're grabbing hold of their ideologies. They're choosing to believe con convenient truths. We're going to talk about binaries and false equivalencies in, in a little bit here. What I'm compelled to do as a peacemaker is, is yes, respond with urgency, but also understand that there's a whole bunch I don't understand about 
the experience and the ways in which my Jewish kin and my Muslim kin, specifically my Palestinian kin, are experiencing this moment. And so I'm just wondering, Jared, would you be willing to to let us have a peek inside of just your own experience of October 7th? I was I was a sh- short, maybe maybe seven kilometers away from you in the West Bank at that time and woke up to rockets exploding in the air above me. And so I'm assuming that that you woke up to those same sounds and then the news of the terror that was unfolding in southern Israel. As an aside, I, I have issues with the word that terror and terrorism and terrorists are assigned haphazardly. And in the, in the case of October 7, I am very comfortable using the word terror and terrorism with what happened in southern Israel at the hands of Hamas insurgents. It was terror. And I'm just wondering, can you bring us into your experience, number one, Jared, and then number two, Help us understand what this awakens in like the collective consciousness of the Jewish people. Would you bring us deeper into what this means and what this feels like? I know you can't speak for the entire Jewish community, but I think you can give us a deeper understanding of what it feels like now to be observing this from within the, the, the Jewish community itself. Sure. It's, yeah, it's quite daunting to have to even want to go back to that moment and try to re-experience it. Yeah. Like, like many, certainly in Jerusalem, where a large part of the Jewish community is religiously observant, as I am myself, meaning that many people are disconnected from technology and from the outside world. And so most of us were, were quite stunned when we heard the air raid sirens uh, go off that morning on Saturday morning, October 7th, which was not only a Sabbath, um, but also a holiday, um, the festival of Simchat Tovah. Um, and there was a lot of confusion within the Jerusalem community in particular because so many people were not following the news, were not on their phones. There was just no, no information. And so we were a little slow to come around to what was going on, but many other parts of the country were much quicker to, to figure out. Like obviously the, the trauma spread very, very quick and the shock, the questions, the confusion, the utter confusion. And so as that ascension spread, sort of the first, tw- I would say 48 to 72 hours, were one a, a sort of a strange dichotomy between the utter unexpectedness of such a, a devastating violent attack, given that we in Israel, specifically Jewish Israelis, usually live an existence of confidence in our ability to defend ourselves. It's right? part of that Zionist narrative that led up to the foundation of the state of Israel in 1948 was essentially creating a space where Jews would no longer have to fear anti-Semitism and pogroms and hatred and, and all of those things that, that Jews are sort of often used to experiencing uh, throughout history and around the world. And so it was a little bit of shock to, to recognize, um, although a bit slowly, that that state had somehow collapsed mm-hmm. or had been outwitted. Nobody was really sure at first. And so there was that side of it, but I think the other side of it, which is very interesting and I think playing stronger right now, is that we very quickly slid back into that historic Jewish narrative of trauma, that in fact, this is part of the Jewish experience, not something I think anyone is proud of or content with, but certainly recognizing that there are always threats to the Jewish existence. And that was, in a way, sort of proof that even having a state of Israel, even having a, a Jewish home, we are not immune to attacks such as the one that experienced on October 7th. That sort of slides back into a more traditional historical narrative of trauma and victimhood. It's first and foremost one that is always played within this framework of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It saddens me that that is not truly a part of most conversations that are happening right now, given the immediacy of the suffering, the anguish, the tragedy on both sides of the border, but specifically within Jewish Israel. And part of the reason why that that saddens me, and I think it challenges me, is because it then immediately leads to that sort of gut response of, we need to fight back, we need to punish, there needs to be a price paid for what is constantly being wrought upon the Jewish people. And so we saw as our leadership is already somewhat fraught with division 
divisions and crises that we have been experiencing in the state of Israel since basically November, it's January that we saw a democratic uh, process being challenged from within. As that leadership fumbled and struggled, I think most Israelis now feel that they failed, both at the general mission of protecting the borders, the, the sanctity of the state of Israel, and also in the immediate response, dealing with the incursion, the fact that there were many Hamas members that were sort of roaming freely around the land, the sort of the enormity of the deaths and deaths taking place in Jewish communities along the border, and of course, the very quickly mounting numbers of uh, Israelis and non-Israelis who were taken hostage back across the border into the Gaza Strip. And so our immediate response was one of lashing out. And I think it was, in my sense, obviously, as an educator, as a historian, as somebody who certainly strives for peace, it was an all-too-convenient way to sort of fall back on gut instinct to, to exact a price. Yeah. And while I think many Israelis are struggling with that need to rid this, this space uh, of an entity like Hamas that has always been determined to extinguish Israel and Jewish population in Israel. I think as time marches on, we are seeing a very intriguing questioning that is sort of a quieter part of our Jewish narrative, wondering what, what damage we are doing to ourselves, what damage we might be doing to our standing in the world. As we defend our, ourselves, or at least that's the narrative that's playing out militarily speaking, is that while it certainly looks very offensive and aggressive on the screen, the narrative in Israel is that this is a defensive war to prevent this from ever happening again. Yeah. And those two sides of the Jewish soul that are responding, one sort of always, always one, two steps away from the Holocaust experience, this attempt to annihilate the Jews. And on the other hand, uh, a sort of a, a justice awakening of wondering uh, whether this is to our benefit, whether it's actually achieving any goals, and and how Israel looks in the process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Such a helpful analysis and so deeply personal, Jared. Thank you for taking a a risk and and stepping out with that. Um, we hold your personal experience and your analysis really close. You know, um, I, I I've been reading. Uh, especially upon my immediate return from Israel, uh, commentary over here that is suggesting that that con that context doesn't matter. That this is an isolated moment and it needs to be dealt with, you know, as it occurred. And I know that you and I, over the past decade, have had conversations around what happens when untended trauma meets unchecked power and the power of of untended trauma in people groups and how it almost makes violence inevitable and i i'm also concerned because it feels like over here to have any conversation that seeks to understand a greater context like for like what you just offered us and you, you just framed for us a, a deeper understanding of what lies behind Israel's response right now which i want to talk about why it's challenging why it's important to critique and i think challenging especially to critique for those of us who are U.S. Americans. And I'll, I'll share a story in a second about just how challenging that is and, and why we need to challenge and be humble in this moment too. But I think there's a challenge right now in saying to understand a deeper context is flirting with condoning either Hamas's behavior in on October the 7th or what looks like some would say an offensive many i think are saying in the international community this looks like the beginnings of an ethnic cleansing potentially moving toward a genocide i mean there's very strong words that are being used right now in terms of how to describe this that to talk about context both for the israeli community but also the palestinian community is flirting with condoning and i just want to push back on that and say to understand context and to have a conversation about context is not to condone it's actually responsible I think, because then I, I think what it may do for us is expand the reach of our empathy and increase our urgency to move toward a place where we're not killing each other. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering about a particular tension right now and how you might be experiencing this, Jared. There, there's the urgency to see killing stop now. <laughs> I mean, even to, to borrowing from what you just said, 
And and you and I had a conversation as we were actually moving in and out of a stairwell as the sirens were blaring with us in Jerusalem about how we were holding our breath, wondering how is Israel going to respond to this? And there was a concern shared that the way it responds, if it responds connected to its trauma in a way that's unchecked, it will not be good for Israel. And I think there's all sorts of reasons for us to work collectively toward a ceasefire and and different ways to consider how do you deal with an ideology that's embodied by a group of people called Hamas. And so there's the urgency and there's just simple grief. There's grief. How do we grieve and hold the urgency of like lives are at stake and are being extinguished at a rapid rate right now? Uh, ain't nobody got time to grieve. You know what I'm saying? So like how, help us think about how you are holding grief and urgency hand in hand right now, or how are you attempting to do that? That's not an easy task. I should start by saying that certainly as, as a resident of Jerusalem, there is a certain privilege. I don't, I don't know if that's the right word simply through geographic distance from most of the intensity of this current round of Jerusalem is by and large seen as just far enough off the radar, although we can still have rocket fired at the city and the region around the city, but we are just safe enough away that as a matter of fact, many, literally thousands, of the evacuees from both the Gaza border region and now the northern border with Lebanon, where we're seeing increased tension and uh, physical engagement between the Israeli forces and Hezbollah, most of many of those evacuees are now home in Jerusalem. That holds to say that I, I constantly, through my frustration, anger, sadness, depression, I, I'm trying to remind myself that I am not experiencing this war as many of my fellow Israelis and Palestinians are who are living in the line of fire or in the most tense regions where this conflict is playing out. In terms of the tension, I wish I could say that most Israelis I know are full on engaged with that tension, but as you can imagine, that's simply not the case. This experience is too fresh. It will be fresh for a long time. And so the trauma is going to, I think, win most parts and minds and souls as people either make decisions for those who are in influential positions or simply those who are solid in terms of reading media and engaging in social conversations and or deciding whether or not to support their government, their military. And so I think that there, there isn't enough of that tension that is taking place, but I do know that it exists because that is very luckily, I think that is the world that I, I largely inhabit or at least try to. And so reflecting on your question and know that anybody has a, a clear answers on how to sort of rid the world of, of evil, right? You framed it more practically speaking. How do we eliminate this thing called Hamas that is always going to be a threat because that essentially, that is how the organization positions itself ideologically. And I think on one hand, it's very important for people to start to internalize that this ideology will never cease to exist. And so uh, I don't have any influence on the decision makers of my own country. I hinted at before, I think a lot of Israelis are lacking a tremendous amount of trust in the ability for our leaders to function. But when they are functioning, they are functioning on... I would argue that one of the more, more narrow-minded approaches to this thing called Hamas, first and foremost, as you said, this current round of violence did not start on October 7th, and it's not going to end when there's there, you know, some sort of ceasefire declared or whatever it may be. This is a, a relatively old conflict that has many repetitive uh, images, patterns, and conversations, and our inability to recognize those things and even our ability to lash out at those who do recognize those things is anybody may have witnessed when they saw the Secretary General of the United Nations use the word vacuum in the context of what this, this round of conflict is not taking place in. He was immediately sort of verbally beaten by pretty much every Israeli official. 
And on one hand, I could certainly understand the trauma that might compel one to not and find fault in such a statement because in a way it feels like they are diminishing the evil behind the action. But on the other hand, it is absolutely blind to not see that that this that moment of October 7th didn't start then. In, there is a history here between the peoples. It doesn't mean that Israel has to take responsibility for the actions of Hamas on October 7th. Uh, but it does mean we need to understand what led to that point mm-hmm. so that when we declare it ceasefire, immediately we get to work uh, repairing the world um, mm-hmm. as we claim that we are destined to do. Yes. And so if we do not learn from our mistakes, if we do not learn from these patterns, then I think we are going to be sorely stuck and essentially just uh, setting up the scene for the next round of conflict, be it yeah. with Hamas or any other yeah. organization. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And so I, I hope and, and, and do believe that eventually someone in the leadership, this, this leadership may have to collapse first, but eventually someone will come along and recognize that number one, Hamas as an ideology cannot be eliminated from this world. While it may be important, I am not a military expert. I know nothing of that realm, but it, while it may be important to deal with in a physical way, the infrastructure, the weapons, and even the individuals who took part in and continue to threaten violence. I think, think that the ultimate goal needs to, to recognize that there, there must be another path to challenging the ideology of Hamas. And while clearly biased in my opinions, uh, as a teacher of history, it has to come from education. Yeah. The only way to move beyond this conflict once those in power decide how it ends is to find ways to re-educate ourselves first and foremost and to then engage in education yeah. across borders through the various cultures and identities of the same in order to not live that, that existence of fear, the lack of knowledge of the other wondering of what the other wants to do to you, which is ironically almost identical on both sides of the border. And so that we can stop playing what we often refer to as the trauma Olympics, where essentially we're more focused on proving to the other that our trauma is worse. And that's why we're afraid of you rather than sort of open up and listen to the other, hear their pain, share our pain and recognize uh, that we're not necessarily yeah. out to get each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well said. And I mean, so much to pull from there if we have more time to just unpack this notion that multiple things can be true at the same time. Like my, my pain is legitimate and is real. And for you to acknowledge that and hold that is not to take up space or diminish your pain. It's just simply to acknowledge that my pain is real. And if we could figure out how to do that with one another, I wonder how we would participate in each other's collective healing. You know, and, and so like I'm, I'm struck by, and, and I know, I know that even in the context, based on your and my conversations, you are someone who's critical uh, of a militarized occupation and critical of what has unfolded in, in Gaza the last 50 years, probably more specifically for the last 16 years. Part of my journey in this, in this conflict is to understand that there is trauma and pain that lies behind an ideology that then finds a manifestation, usually. If the pain is unchecked, it creates an ideology that manifests in violence. And, and if we, if we learn from history, and this is where I'm going to get very critical of, of my own, my own people in my own place. If you look at the history of U.S. American global violence, let's just look at things like Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam. It is absurd to think that we can erase an ideology utilizing the same kinds of violence that created it right and, and and so here's what i find and i want i listen to netanyahu speak and he is pointing to the game plan of the united states look what you did in iraq and the international community did not stop you. look what you have done in afghanistan and the international community did not stop you look what you did historically in vietnam and the international community did not stop you you know, and if there's a lesson to be learned, I think if you want to take a page of the book of U.S. Americans, uh, I would say to Netanyahu, actually look from history and recognize that at the cost of 650,000 lives in Iraq, 
It did not eliminate an ideology. It reinforced it. And it gave rise to the to next levels and echelons of violent ideologies. Violence creates enemies. That's it. No one wins, right? And so my concern is either we are going to stop reaching for power and start reaching for the hand of one another, or we're not going to make it as a global family. I mean, when you see, and I, I love it, like this is, this is your neighborhood right now, but you're, you're starting to see warships line up along the coast of Israel right now. You've got, like, we haven't sent one. We've sent two as far as I understand. We send one to send a message. We send two when it's ready to go. You know, I think Iran is sending some action. China's getting involved. I guess my question is, when are we going to stop reaching for power and start reaching for one another's hand? You know? And so, my friend, I'm recognizing I can't speak truth to power and change to someone else's society. My role is to speak truth to power and change to society here in my space, among my people, among American Christians in particular, and American evangelicals more specifically. The journey that we're trying to take U.S. American Christians on in this moment is a perilous pilgrimage of liberation from fidelity to a religion that promotes domination, to a faith that propels restoration. That involves becoming people who can see the humanity, dignity, and image of God more clearly in our other's irritants and enemies. It also involves being able to see and understand their pain and their plight more accurately. It involves immersing into the radical center of one another's pain, not to win, but with tools to transform. It looks like forging relationships of solidarity that transform us and then where we get to listen for the solutions that have been germinating most often in the souls of those who have been oppressed and occupied by the abuse of power. The solutions have been germinating in their souls, you know? And then once we understand that, then we can begin to understand how to deploy the tools and resources that we have. The movement that we're building here is a movement that's built on a faith that restores rather than dominates. And so I have to speak to the power in that system like you are trying to speak truth to power in your system. And so I'm wondering right now, because I also know that you are, you are in solidarity with Palestinians. You are in deep personal re- relationship with them. You are you not just bridging, you are a bridge between these two peoples. And so I wonder right now, Jared, how are you thinking about your role as an agent of rest- restoration and healing and repair? How are you thinking about expanding the reach of empathy among your own people. What do you understand is your role in this moment as a peacemaker to grow an understanding that moves us in the direction of one another rather than toward isolation and and more protectiveness and and violence? First of all, just want to dispel any any illusions uh, that I have any influence or play in my own society beyond, you know, a few close friends and colleagues. I wish, I wish I had that sort of effect on, on humanity, but I'm not sure it's the case. But I will forge ahead and keep doing what I think needs to be done. And, and that is this. Back up one, one step to explain for folks that maybe are less familiar with culture and society here in the Middle East. Unlike in most Western countries, especially in North America, uh, we are extremely tribal in nature. It's something that can be very, very beautiful. Um, you know, when we talk about historical narratives and faith traditions and identities, those things come from a very personal sense of right, right? Meaning I was, I inherited the life story. I was given the way to lead a just and proper life by my ancestors, by my prophets, by my rabbis, by my messiahs, whatever it is. And so we find ourselves deeply in beautiful identities and stories that we tell generation to generation, but they sometimes can close us all from understanding that there are other tribes in the neighborhood. And so we get very, very tribal here. And ironically, I think one of the things that we need most is what many of of you in North America sometimes, not pretty be right now, but certainly historically have taken for granted. This concept of a melting pot of multiculturalism, diversity among societies, things that we do not experience on a day-to-day basis in the Middle East, not Israel, not Palestine, not any of our uh, neighboring cultures. And so I think that's one tool that, first of all, we can learn from 
you, the U.S. and from the and from Western cultures uh, in general, that have at least tried to experiment with that concept and trying to implement it here uh, in the sense of not feeling like the only way to pursue a narrative is to essentially define the community within boundaries mm. to say that all other ideas must be kept on the outside in order for us to excel at who we are. And so th that concept, I think, can go very, very far here. And that is at the core of a lot of the educational work and activist work that I am engaged with. And so when I say I'm ready to move forward and doing what I do, again, it's not really me so much. It is the endless, countless organizations that are, while maybe struggling at the moment, to continue in their activities of encounters and engaging and listening and learning and challenging each other, they are still doing so and will continue to do so long after this round of conflict is over. They are not sexy media soundbites. They are hard to find unless we're looking in the right spaces. And so what is not making international media, certainly not right now, are the amazing communities in Israel and in Palestine who are engaging with each other, not necessarily directly about the conflict even. It could be on shared natural resources and trying to figure out how to deal with sewage. It could be on creative new political movements to challenge the somewhat no longer inspiring doesn't seem to be very popular anymore. It could be simply faith analysis, bringing people together. Once you open up the other person's Bible and recognize that so many of those stories are similar to the ones in your own texts, it's very easy to sit down and start to engage with that person about our faith traditions. Mm. And so it's these kinds of activities that I truly feel are the path forward beyond this conflict. And so I, despite my difficulty in doing anything normal on a day-to-day -day basis. And again, that's coming from a place of privilege, right? Being in Jerusalem, where I don't feel physically threatened day to day. But despite that difficulty and, you know, struggling with the pressure that everybody's feeling right now, the one thing that gives me hope and gets me out of bed are the meetings and the check-ins and the planning for the future, both in terms of the action on the ground, but also for me as an educator of knowing that eventually students will come back, educational programs will come back, tourists will come back, and they all need to be exposed to and engage with uh, sort of multi-narrative cross-border experiences and encounters. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what, what, what gives me the sense of we'll come out of this on the other side, yes. even if we're set back. We'll come out of it and we have a path forward. Yeah, man. La last question, Jared. Thank you so much for the gift of your time, your friendship, your perspective here. What? I think along tribalism, there's been a, a long history of Christians, Jews, and Muslims highlighting what we, our differences and what we don't hold in common versus what we actually share. And my work has brought me deep into the Abrahamic movements and have found that at the center of our movements, we are in lockstep. And, and so I wonder, speak to North American evangelicals right now from your vantage point and understanding that you're talking to a group of people who have for, for generations been unequivocally pro-Israel. I think both connected to a theology that is probably a self-serving theology. I think evangelicals think that by being pro-Israel, we get God's blessing too. And if we don't, then something bad's going to happen to us. I also think that evangelicals think that to support Israel and unequivocally means like we actually don't critique, we don't offer accountability. Um, we, we actually think that we can expedite the return of Jesus. And that's real theology that we're navigating over here, um, making it very hard for many U.S. American Christians to hear a critique of this violence and to hear people like us calling for a ceasefire because for many evangelicals, this is the violence that we've been waiting for. Like this, we're coming to the end times, Jared, don't you know? 
You know, so it's, it, and I, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be haphazard about that at all. That is very real. And that is a very strong theological foundation that many people are, are standing in. However, I'm also watching many U.S. American evangelicals in this moment. I'm, I'm watching the pores of their souls open. And, and I, I'm, I'm sad that it's taken this level of horror to get there. But I'm watching the pores of their souls open to the point at which they're beginning to ask, is God honored by our endorsement of violence to accomplish our means? So there's an op- opening here, I think, with American evangelicals to move in a direction from pro-Israel, unequivocal pro-Israel, to pro-human. And I wonder, my friend, how would you encourage us as evangelicals who are asking those questions and feeling that dissonance and leaning in, how would you encourage us to continue to take that journey toward pro-human right now? Great question. I think the best way to answer that question is to go back to the concept that you introduced before we even begin this conversation, and that is machloket. The idea that essentially every solution, and, and, and keep in mind, rabbinically speaking, Machloket's act of when Dawkins translated is constructive doesn't necessarily have a solution. It might have some sort of temporary precision in order to, to practically implement some sort of, you know, legal question or situation. Uh, but the rabbinic Jewish historic rabbinic tradition teaches us that one of the ultimate goals of Machloket, of engaging with each other around debate and disagreement and difference is to always be engaged in machlokes. That is the ultimate goal, is to consistently be engaged in the conversation, not to win or to lose. And so while we can certainly find biblical precedent in all of our faith traditions for winning and losing, we all have a God that has been or maybe continues to be a, a fosterer of, of conflict of some sort. Our biblical verses are not vague in that sense of, you know, inheriting a land and wiping out the enemy and challenging those that don't belong, et cetera, et cetera. We are those who are committed to a religious life and to a biblical study, uh, always know that there is tension within the text between that God of vengeance and war and the God that commands us to pursue justice. And so maybe we can't rid the conflict out of our world, given that for better or for worse, it is rooted in our historical texts and traditions. But we certainly can try to balance it out, if not overpower it, with the messages that clearly jump off the page, that we are commanded uh, to look out for each other, both within and without, as we read over and over again in the Hebrew scriptures, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And so it is those principles of faith that must guide us forward. And so in Machloket, we don't all necessarily have to agree on the path, and we don't necessarily have to agree on the balance between the need for boundaries, political structures, military systems, but we, I think we must agree that we need to live out the full version of our biblical traditions, which includes all of those commandments and, and principles that force us to, to engage and look out for each other. And so I, I personally don't have as much experience with sort of the evangelical world of Christianity, given that much of the academic experience in the Holy Land for Christians tends to be the Catholic institution. And that is simply a reflection on the investment that they have put into that realm. But nonetheless, we have a tremendous amount of evangelical tourism that takes place in the Holy Land. And if we can somehow find a way to sort of just, you know, insert to influence just a little bit of the of the justice work mm-hmm. into the experience of walking in Jesus's footsteps, I think that'll go a long way to moving people away from the eschatology of 
you know, I must get behind Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, while it certainly feels good and in times of peace, uh, ironically, I think many Jewish Israelis are, uh, are quite content with the support that we get from the evangelical uh, Christian community around the world. Um, it's a time like this where I think we need to do our part in addition to the evangelical community to say that sort of being one-sided, both in terms of the conflict, Israel versus Palestine, but also one-sided in terms of our biblical traditions is not really being true to our faith identities. Mm. Thank you. I, I've heard you say before that to win is to break from the tradition. Mm. And, and I think that that remains true as well for we who identify as Christian. Winning is not in the ethic of Jesus. If, if you take selfless sacrifice over military overthrow or political power as the way toward restoration, winning is not in the ethic of Jesus. And, and so, yeah, I was picking that. And I see, I see a comment around like the struggle of listening to this conversation when like bombs are dropping and children are dying in Gaza. And I just want to acknowledge that. I want to acknowledge that comment that this is, I, I feel like I'm, I'm etched at night by the urgency of ending what is an absolute catastrophe in, in Gaza and recognizing that we have to be having conversations here in North America that move people beyond the false binaries, the good versus evil, the Israel versus Palestine, and the false equivalencies like Hamas equals Palestinian equals enemy equals terrorists. Like this is part of the reason that we are here. I, the, the false equivalencies and the binaries and believing them and the Sunday school theology that is self-serving has made this violence inevitable. And so as U.S. evangelicals, we have got to grow a more holistic understanding of what's going on. And I think we actually have to find a faith that's worth our lives because the faith that we've been socialized into has cost the lives of too many. And so this is one of several conversations that we're going to be having um, in, in the weeks to come. Jared, you in particular, I think have really opened uh, my eyes and deepened our understanding of the collective trauma, the psyche. Um, what happened on October 7th and what that has awakened um, in Jewish consciousness. Um, and it helps us understand its ethic right now. And, and to us who are U.S. Americans, rather than standing by and watching it apathetically, indifferently, or paralyzed by the size of it, the, the steps of demanding ceasefire, of demanding a release of the hostages, of finding with Global Immersion and other organizations those who are still in the trenches fighting like peacemakers for people's lives right now. That's some of the work that we're committed to, but we're also committed to growing understanding in this space too. So Jared, thanks for being a, a guide to, for the journey, especially helping us understand the Jewish perspective. You're a gift to me, you're a gift to us. Stay safe and uh, stay in the trenches, man. Keep reaching, keep reaching for the hands of, of others right now, okay? Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Right on. Appreciate it. Thanks, friends. The virtual immersion into the Israel-Gaza war continues on Global Immersion's Instagram channel, at Global Immerse. Follow us there and please share these conversations broadly if you agree that they need to be heard. Special thanks to our Embers community of monthly donors, investors in peace, who make the virtual immersion and this podcast possible. Learn more about the work of Global Immersion at globalimmerse.org.